All right, we are in a sermon series, and we we're starting to talk about some of the icons that we have at the church. If you're newer, this is a little bit of a different kind of sermon series for us, but I thought it would be helpful for us to sort of look at and understand some of these shared stories and symbols that we have as part of the service. And so I just thought, well, what better time to do that than All Saints Day and a couple of weeks after that? You know, so we don't have a lot of like formal symbols in this worship space. And so I deliberately chose a few of these icons um, of people whose stories that I thought might be especially helpful for us to remember. So like next week, we'll talk about some of the queer saints that have been remembered in the church. And then the following Sunday, we'll have, we'll have something else. But this week, we're going to be looking at St. Rocco and St. Olga, right? So these are just people whom the believers of their time, um, who either knew them or knew of them, said, you know, there's something that's uh, maybe not been recognized in other parts of our tradition that we want to also honor as faithful to God and pass down as a piece of our faith. And so the first one I want to talk about, he's a little bit small, so I'll put it up here if you want to look at him later. This is St. Rocco. Let's see if I can get, yeah, he's got a dog. He's always pictured with a dog. And his story um, has a few variations, which to me says that some of it is probably, like some of the elements make me think that it's been remembered in a way that's a bit more mythical. But I think we'll get the essence of why people have embraced him. So his name's Rocco. Um, his French name was Roche, and I think I'm saying that right, but I'm not sure. I just think Rocco sounds kind of, I like it. It means rock. So he was born in France in a town down along the Mediterranean coast, somewhere in the mid-1300s. And Rocco had the misfortune of being born in the middle of a second major wave of the bubonic plague. Right, so this was the wave that killed like a third of Europeans, maybe as many as 50 to 60%. And so that was the time or the context he was born in, and he was said to have had a red birthmark in the shape of a cross on his chest. So Rocco's family had a little bit of land, and so legend has it that after his parents died, quite likely of the plague, but we don't know, Rocco took his inheritance and he gave away his land to people who needed it more, and then he made his way down into Italy to go and work with plague victims in different hospitals. So he started down in Rome, and then he made his way up north into the northern part of Italy, and he, he was working in and around Milano. And so Rocco was known for being really courageous because it was scary to tend to plague victims. It was highly contagious. And he was known for being a skilled healer. So there are some stories that say he would just simply go into a room and make the sign of a cross and people would be healed, they would get better. But I'm going to guess that it was just general kindness, helping people stay hydrated, helping with quarantining the sick. Um, those were probably closer to the truth of what made him known for being a helpful medic. And as you might guess, Rocco then eventually did contract the disease himself. Um, so there were some accounts that said Rocco, um, knowing that you needed to quarantine, that seemed to be the only effective sort of treatment to keep it from spreading, that he went and quarantined himself of his own volition so that he wouldn't get other people sick. And so in that story, he went off into the forest around Milano, and it said he built himself a beautiful hut out of bows and leaves. Other accounts say that he was actually forcefully exiled from the city like a lot of people who contracted the plague were, and that he withdrew to a nearby cave where he got so weak that he was barely surviving. And he was kept alive only by a, a stream of some clear mountain water that was running outside of that cave. 
and then by the instincts of an astute animal. So this is where the dog comes in. And I know some of you really love your dogs. So I think I said last week that he saved the dog, but it's actually the other way around. The dog saved him. I'd forgotten that. So it said that a local nobleman had this hunting dog. And so this dog was said to have had a loaf of bread that was strapped to him, and he happened upon Rocco in this cave as he was dying. And so at that point, Rocco hadn't eaten for days. He's on his last leg, and he accepted this loaf of bread as the gift from God sent to save his life. Now, some accounts also say that the dog came back with the bread day after day after day, and that the dog just tended Rocco until he grew strong enough to follow the dog back to his home, and that Rocco kept his, or that the dog kept Rocco's wounds clean, because bubonic plague caused a lot of open source. I find that like super gross, but it's a little detail. Like you'll notice, like his wound on his leg is always showing by the dog, and that's the reason why. Um, other people say the dog's owner simply, you know, followed the dog on that first trip when the dog found him and was able to rescue a dying Rocco. Regardless, most people agree that he was brought to this nobleman's castle where he was then nursed back to health. And then once he was healthy enough to return to his home in France, he said that he disguised himself so that he wouldn't be known. Now, there's no really clear explanation as to why he would have done that. I don't know if there were political forces that scared him. Uh, maybe he was afraid of bandits and he had been known to have had some land at one point. Uh, maybe he had been forcibly exiled from a city and was afraid of being recognized. We don't really know. What we do know is that when he returned to his home in France, he was arrested on the charge of being a spy and thrown in jail for five years. And so once again, Rocco found himself in these dire circumstances. Now, by most accounts, he ended up dying in jail, having been falsely accused of being a spy. Some of the more fantastic accounts say that when he was near death in his jail cell, his body started emitting a heavenly blue light, like this sort of glow coming out of him. And that this glow was so mysterious that word eventually got around to the local governor about this glowing man, and the governor demanded to know the identity of this person. And so you've got this dramatic scene where the governor went to the jail, and he went to ask Rocco personally who he was, and when he asked him, Rocco said, I am your nephew. It's a very like Luke, I am your father kind of moment. And everybody gasps at the idea that the governor's own nephew was in jail and falsely accused. And the governor said, there is only one way to tell if what you say is true. My nephew had a birthmark in the shape of a cross on his chest. And so Rocco lifts his shirt, he reveals his birthmark, and everyone was amazed. Right? And so then in this version, Rocco lives on, and everyone heard his story of being reconciled with his uncle, um, came to faith in God. So if you know me, you know, I tend to think the less fantastic accounts are probably closer to the truth. Rocco probably died in jail, falsely accused of being a spy. In addition to being the patron saint of afflictions and the protector against plague and contagious diseases, which were the re original reasons I actually sought him out, um, it was during COVID when I, I was looking for a couple of saints whose stories might be helpful to us. I also discovered Rocco was the patron saint of scapegoats. So if you know me, like that's the entire, like that's a lot of uh, theology in there. So I thought, well, that's interesting. The larger church remembered him on some level as having been scapegoated. And the thing about scapegoats in, in the way the social dynamic works 
is that they're falsely accused of something, in this case, probably being a spy, and then they're either killed, jailed, exiled, deported, right? Some sort of formal exclusion. And then it's a known dynamic that the people who tend to do the scapegoating, right? The people doing the accusing and then the people who kind of go along with the accusations, they often mythologize the people that they persecute or scapegoat after that scapegoat dies or is banished, right? So I thought, well, that's interesting because if Rocco had actually been falsely accused of being a spy and thrown in jail to assuage some, you know, local political anxieties, it would make sense that the perpetrators would then come up with some kind of story about him emitting heavenly light and not being left to death by them, right? But living on. But it still seems that some of the people knew the truth, who knew Rocco was innocent, said, nah, he was scapegoated, and we are going to remember him as the patron saint of scapegoats. So I felt like Rocco's story uh, might resonate on a few levels. One of them was, when I read it the first time, I thought, you know, this seems like just kind of a normal guy who did what he could to care for other people, right? So I think some of the stories that I've read of different saints, you know, they have them taking vows of poverty, vows of chastity, they're often monks or nuns. Um, they go off into isolation for years. Sometimes they're performing fantastic feats or writing big tomes of mystical writings, which are lovely. But for me, they sometimes feel a little less accessible. But I thought, you know, Rocco here, he just strikes me as like a guy who lost his parents and then went off to help some people in a time of crisis. And depending on how you read it, you could even say, gosh, if he lost his parents to, you know, to the, to the plague, maybe that's the way he was kind of processing that trauma or trying to make meaning of it by going and then helping others. And there's a long history of the Christian community holding up members who care for the sick. Right? There's this historian, Rodney Stark, and he's postulated that Christianity actually grew really ex um, exponentially in the time of the Roman Empire because Christians were known for caring for the sick during a time of intense plague in the 200s and 300s. Right? So they were known for like staying inside the cities when other people were leaving just to tend to the sick at their own risk. And so I think Rocco's actions kind of fall in line with that stream of the faith. And I thought it was something that was worth remembering as we were caring for each other during COVID. And I also thought it might be especially meaningful for the medical professionals in our congregation. Um, in some ways, I feel like, I mean, COVID feels like a million years ago. I like, did that weird thing with time. I feel kind of like, oh yeah, that's over and done. But I'm now finding like a lot of medical professionals who worked through some of the worst years are just now kind of finding some of the trauma of that catching up to them. And so I thought if that speaks to you, you might find some um, solidarity in Rocco who also lived through that. I also kind of liked the details of this story about Rocco being tended by a clear mountain stream and by a caring dog, right? So I think that there's something here that like really speaks to our need to let the creation tend to us, let nature tend to us as we tend to it in this sort of relationship of reciprocity and that that's part of our healing if we remember that that is part of sort of the creator's plan to help us thrive. And we'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. But I thought animals and streams helping Rocco heal seems like the sort of bonus item in the story. And then obviously with my read of the gospel being about God vindicating the scapegoated of the world through Jesus, just knowing Rocco is the patron saint of scapegoats felt really meaningful to me. So you can see he's usually pictured here with a dog. You see the wound on his leg. That's why his, his, uh, his shirt is usually up a little bit. So you can see his bubonic plague wound. 
um, and why he's always got sort of a dog staring up at him. And just as a little bonus also, he's the patron saint of bachelors because he didn't take a vow of chastity and we don't know him to have gotten married. So that's another person that don't often get like a patron saint. So there we go, Rocco. Actually, I'll put him... I'll put him down here and you can look at him a little bit later if you'd like. We kind of rotate these in and out. Now, I'm not going to spend quite as long here on St. Olga. So this is St. Olga of Alaska. I think we often have her on one of the, one of the corners up here. Make sure I don't like drop that there. Um, she also was sort of a normal woman who simply cared for people in her sphere. And she's more recent. She actually just died in 1979. So I was born in 1978. So she was alive when I was born. She's not officially a saint yet, but she's like getting super fast-tracked through the process in the Eastern Orthodox Church and could actually become an official saint by the end of this year, the last I looked. And it would make her the first female Orthodox saint from North America. So she was an indigenous Alaskan. She was born to the Yupik tribe in a rural village. And her tribe had adopted Russian Orthodoxy many generations before them. So this was sort of their long-standing faith tradition in that village. And so for most of her early adult life, her husband just ran the local general store in the post office. In fact, I think he founded them. I think they were in this very, very rural space. And he's like, we need a store and a post office. So he did that. And Olga served as like the midwife for nearby villages. And it was only a little bit later in life that her husband Nikolai became an Orthodox priest, and then the two of them sort of tended the faith life of several villages together. So what Olga is known and loved for is her empathy and her compassion for Native women who were abused. So she is um, going to be the patron saint of people with physical and sexual trauma. She also lost five of her 13 children before adulthood, um, and I thought that that might speak to a few of you who I know have lost kids or have lost grandkids at young ages. And so I don't want to linger on abuse from the pulpit for triggering reasons for people, but I just wanted to say that I think it speaks a great deal to Olga's influence and meaning to the people around her, that as soon as she passed away, the Christian community around her said, this woman represented the love of God on earth, and that she listened to us, and she believed us, and she loved us, and she held our stories. And I think we all need representation, even in our faith stories and traditions, maybe especially in our faith stories and traditions. And so I think Olga's story adds a little sort of extra biblical context to our Christian faith. You know, so whether you've experienced physical trauma or if you're somebody who holds other people's trauma stories, um, you might be able to look at Olga and say, there I am. Christianity says my story matters too. Olga also got the nickname the Tabitha of the North. So this is a reference to a Bible character in the book of Acts. Um, Tabitha was her Greek name, um, I, or her, yeah, her Greek, is that right? No, her Aramaic name. I need Christian. He's not here this morning, I think. Um, he's a language scholar. Dorcas is her Greek name. And, you know, I just like it because it translates so well to us. So, um, <laughs> so she's called both things in the book of Acts. Tabitha of the North. So Tabitha was known for making clothes for people who were in need, and she was probably one of the more well-to-do women in the early Christian community. And so she was able to make and to give away clothing out of her own means and was honored for that. So in the book of Acts, Luke indicates that Tabitha took Scripture's views about society's most vulnerable really seriously. Things like from Zechariah, don't oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In other words, the people who... 
are maybe unable to um, have access structurally to some of the means that they would need to care for themselves and their families. So Olga was also known for making clothes for people who needed it. And so she is the Tabitha of the North. So I put Rocco and Olga's stories together because I saw them as two people who just simply responded with love and kindness to the people who were around them. And I thought, I think it's helpful for us to remember that we don't have to do anything extravagant to be remembered as people who show God's love to the other people in our spheres of influence, right? It's just responding with decency and with compassion. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that people who care for others are part of what he was about. So I'll leave us with this from Matthew 25. He said, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison? When did we go visit you? And the creator will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. I thought I'll just, one little tiny story, my, my niece Vivian. So, you know, my mom had knee replacement surgery, which is why my grandma Gwen, is napping a little, um, <laughs> is here with us for a few weeks. Vivian, uh, so my youngest sister, Lindsay, is taking care of my mom. And Lindsay's got two kids, they're 13 and 11. And the 11-year-old Vivian is just kind of a hostess. And so Lindsay was like, it was so cute. She's like, oh, grandma's coming to stay with us. And she made a big banner for her. And she went down to her other grandma's house and got like a teapot and some tea sets and like picked flowers and made her this little set. And I thought, that's all it's about, isn't it? Little Vivian understands what it means to be a Christian or to be someone who's faithful to God. She's just loving the person in front of her. So with that, we usually do about a minute or two of silent or guided meditation. Um, people make noise. It's never perfectly silent in here. But I thought, we'll just take about a minute and we'll just invite the Spirit to um, say whatever it is Spirit would like to say to us this morning. If you brought something here particularly on your heart, this would be a good time to maybe just offer that before God. I'll let you know when that time is up.
So Creator, we thank you so much that there is a variation, um, a variety of ways of being faithful to you that have been passed down. We thank you that there have been stories of people whose stories may not have otherwise been preserved, um, but are there to let us know that we're not alone and that there is a wideness um, at the table of the Creator. I ask that we can find some of that solidarity, and especially if you're a person or if we're a person that's felt like maybe there hasn't been enough space in the Christian faith for us, that we'll, we'll find some little handle holds of other people's stories and say, ah, there we are. We ask that you would teach us just to love the people in front of us as best we can. We ask that you help make our hearts soft, that we respond with kindness and with generosity to those around us. In your name we pray, amen.